Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and it's December, which can only mean that we're sitting in the shed at the bottom of my garden to discuss the Physics World Book of the Year 2019. But I'm not alone here in what is commonly known as the Cosmic Shed, the home of my other podcast, of course. And joining me today is... Tishna Commissariat of Physics World, of course. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. Hello, it's lovely to have you here. Um, so, this is the tenth time you've done this. That's right, yeah. It's been a decade of our Book of the Year award. Over a hundred books on our shortlists now, and... Uh, only getting better. As normal on the Physics World Book of the Year episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, we're going to talk through some of the books on the shortlist and we'll end the podcast by revealing the winner of this year's Physics World Book of the Year. We'll come to the shortlist very soon, but before we do, if you haven't already listened to the Physics World Weekly podcast from the last week in November this year, Mm -hmm. then after you've listened to this one, you should go back and listen to that because you, Tushna and... Mateen Durrani, who is our editor-in-chief, and Margaret Harris, who was the books editor before me and the one who, you know, institutionalised our Book of the Year award. We discuss... 10 years of the Book of the Year Award, trends in popular physics writing, some of our favourite books, our pet peeves, and there's even a section on what it's like being an author and writing a popular science book, Um, because one of the three of us has written one. You'll have to listen to the podcast (laughs) to find out who, if you don't know already. I'd I'd hate to think that there was anybody who listens to the Physics World Stories podcast who hadn't already got that book. (laughs) But you had 100 books to talk Mm. through. We've got just the 10, but we should still get on with it all the same. I can't help but notice that this year has been the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 and the Apollo 12 moon landings. I've said it before on the podcast, but I'm not a big fan of round numbers. I think those missions are exciting (laughs) all the time. But I do notice that there is a book on on the shortlist called The Moon, A History for the Future by Oliver Morton. As I'm sure you know, Andrew, considering you reviewed the other book for that month, <laughs> um, we did have, we, you know, obviously this year there were a number of books about the Apollo missions, about, you know, space travel and going to the moon. Um, so it was quite tough um, picking one or two to review. And then it was even harder to decide which one goes onto our shortlist. Um, and although the one you reviewed, Apollo, you, you loved it and you gave it a very good review. The, the reason I decided to pick the other book the moon um is it's just because it just covers a little bit more and actually you know sometimes as we're talking about us getting to the moon it's almost like we forget the moon itself Mm. you know and what oliver does in this book is that he he covers all of that it's 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 the human aspect of the moon it's it's our story with the moon you know everything from its origin to to the role that it's played in 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 humanity and you know after the sun it's the second most significant thing in our sky it's it's had a huge impact on us culturally scientifically um and so Oliver does a really good job covering all of these aspects. And he also, there is a large section of the book that looks at Apollo. In fact, our reviewer, um, the lovely Sarah Crudis, who's also written a great space book for children this year called The Space Race. So she loved it she, because it was so wide-ranging. And she, she said in the review that she really enjoyed the Apollo transcripts, you know, just reading those. And she just kind of said it almost brought a tear to her eye because it's such an... Such, such a wonderful thing but then the nice part about Oliver's book is that it also it, it, it tells the story of what's happening right now and while we might not be at that stage where we've gone to the moon again in recent years it talks about um, the moon as a resource when we will go back to it what sort of bays we can build on the moon mining the moon things like that so it it you know that's why that that's why his the tagline a history for the future it's it's you know what the moon's done for us and what it's still going to do for us so i think it's really nice and that it's a very sort of a good overview oh. of our closest neighbor <laughs> I, I the the trouble with this podcast and i'm sure it's the 
problem that everybody who's listening suffers is that it increases your Christmas list with every book that we talk about. (laughs) I mean, if you haven't bought all of the books that we reviewed this year already, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Making podcasts, mainly. Um, Sorry, I should have have (laughs) bought them all already. The, The second book that has really caught my eye, obviously The Cosmic Shed, we normally talk about the science of films and Mm -hmm. theatre shows and science of science fiction really and I couldn't help but notice Fire, Ice and Physics, The Science of Game of Thrones by Rebecca C. Thompson. Yes, now that's a really interesting book Andrew but before we chat about it a bit more I have a confession to make. Oh. I'm not a fan of the Game of Thrones. What? series i know i know i've i've i i tried to get into the books and um they didn't quite do it for me and i've tried multiple times to start watching the tv series so this was an interesting book when it landed on my desk Despite despite the fact that I haven't watched the TV series, I still think I'm going to read this book. Okay. Uh, and that's because who doesn't want to know about the physics of dragons, for example? What, what is the physics of dragons? Well, there's a lot of physics involved in dragons. Um, the first question is, can you have something as big as a dragon as they're portrayed in Game of Thrones, something that size. Can you have something that big and can it fly? What's the dynamics of that? How, how, you know, can it, is it even possible? When you're thinking about that, you suddenly have to look at jumbo jets and dinosaur paleontology and things like, can it then, in theory, breathe fire? Uh, and to do that, you've got to have a physics definition of what constitutes fire. You've got to look into combustion and things like that. And, and then you've got to look at it from a biological possibility of how exactly this would happen. As our reviewer, Kate Gardner, who is our production editor and a big fan of Game of Thrones, <laughs> as she points out, the next question is, can it make fire hot enough to melt stone? Which I think is a key plot point. Okay. <laughs> Involved. No spoilers. <laughs> I, well, okay, so I have to admit slightly that I sort of fell off Game of Thrones. And I I didn't get as far as the final season, which, as I understand it, is not a bad thing. Ah. Uh, It seems to have upset quite a few people the last season. Um, But uh, I think the the best thing we can do here is for me to email Rebecca C. Thompson Mm -hmm. and see if she'll join us for an episode of The Cosmic Shed in the future. And let us move on. There's another book on the list which isn't about Game of Thrones but has a similarly interesting title which is The Second Kind of Impossible, The Extraordinary Quest for a New Form of Matter by Paul J. Steinhardt. That is a really interesting book and I have to say it's one of our favourites from this year. Um, I should mention that it was also, it was shortlisted on the Royal Society's Book of the Year Award. It didn't win it, but it was on the shortlist. As our reviewer, Hamish Johnston, who's the news editor of Physics World, as he points out in his review, it's this rip-roaring adventure tale which is rather confusing when you're talking about your classic physics book Um, but it really is there's a there's an actual quest a real quest that these scientists went on in the 90s but okay before we get ahead of ourselves the second kind of impossible that refers to something known as a quasi crystal now do you know what a quasi crystal is Andrew? Um, Not a real crystal (laughs) (laughs) Do do you know what? That was the idea. That was exactly what physicists thought before Paul went out and found one. So so a quasi-crystal is a crystal that is quasi-periodic. So it's not perfectly periodic. So a, a basic thing of crystal structure and lattice structure is that they have symmetries and, and they are perfectly periodic. And um, there, there are a handful of rules that determine what sort of periodicity you have. And, you know, you can have a 2D lattice and a 3D and a 4D. But there are certain lattice shapes and things like that, certain periodicities, that um, our theory said absolutely could not exist, like a 5D thing. So this is having something that have that has five sides. And can you place it repeatedly in a way so that it has this periodicity? And our rules said no. And then sometime in the early 90s... Um, 
a handful of physicists, uh, including this material scientist called Dan Shetman. Um, he found this this crystal in a man-made substance in an alloy in the lab that broke these these enshrined rules of crystallography, right? And they, they found it and it had this 5D periodicity and it was unbelievable and, and amazing and and people people were not convinced. Uh, in fact, it, cre- it was one of those things that back in the day created quite a bit of a bit of a doodah and there were Nobel Prize winning physicists who said, oh, there was a great quote, that there's no such thing as a quasi-crystal, only a quasi-physicist. <laughs> oh, burn, Gosh. I know. So there was quite a bit of a ding-dong around it. Paul was absolutely convinced that they did. They did exist. This wasn't some sort of one-off thing. And, and so that's the first kind of impossible. And it's a kind of impossible because it was only impossible in our theories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then that turned out to be different. The second kind of impossible is where Paul was... He he wondered that if these crystals exist, if these quasi-crystals exist, um, do they exist in nature? Because that's where we found a lot of, you know, crystal structure. Can they grow in nature? Does nature allow for this weird sort of periodicity in that to happen? And that's where everyone was like, no, absolutely not. It's not going to happen. And so his book is all about the quest, the literal physical quest that they went on to find these kind, these kinds of crystals out in nature. And the quest aspect comes from the fact that they did find it in a sample of this natural rock in a museum, but nobody, nobody kind of believed it again. And so he had to go back to where these, <laughs> this rock was found, mm-hmm. um, which happened to be in Kamchatka, which is a peninsula in northern Russia. It's this out in the middle of nowhere in the wilds of Russia. And so he put together an expedition to go and find this. And there was all sorts of drama and sort of dodgy Russian scientists who wouldn't give up their sources and he had to, you know, go and find uh, uh, people who were willing and who didn't think that he was just talking nonsense. It's it's amazing because you think this is this is a physicist who's spent majority of his time in his lab in Princeton and there he is going off camping and trekking and all on this quest mm. to find it's this. Not, it's not what you expect from a scientist. Absolutely not. But so so that that's the so that's the book, you know. So if you according to Hamish who reviewed it, the book it's it's a matter of three halves and the first half is where he explains the science of it, but it's a very nice basic explanation. In fact, anyone with a good interest, a science enthusiast should be able to understand the science aspect of it. The second half of the book is where he talks about the first kind of impossible to sort of discovering it in the lab and working out the the theory behind it. And then the second kind of impossible, which is going off on this quest and finding it. And the really interesting thing is that we found great examples of quasi-crystals in meteorites. So quasi-crystals from space, how exciting. Um, and, And yeah, there's they're fascinating and they're beautiful to look at because as it turned out there's it has lots of links to things like penrose tiling and if you don't know what that is i suggest you have a quick google because they're really lovely to look at and um and then they looked at lots of beautiful muslim architecture from back in the day and it turned out that they had been using these patterns and that so there's this amazing story that develops and so yeah if you want to hear the tale of and, and of course, this, you know, Dan Shetman won the Nobel Prize for his research. And, and if people are saying, OK, this is great and everything, but what's the usefulness of it? We now have real quasi-crystals that we can make in the lab. And because of their weird periodicity, it, it gives some amazing properties. So you can make highly, you know, some very hard surfaces. You can make very slippery surfaces. And I'm pretty sure that if you see Paul Steinard give a talk, he, he talks about a cooking range that's almost as good as Teflon <laughs> that uses a quasi-crystal coating. Wow. Which is a mouthful. Um, okay. Is so, that yeah. what the Star Wars La Crusade is covered in? Because it's Ooh, very expensive. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. It's all <laughs> meteorite. <laughs> meteorite quasi-crystals. Wouldn't that be exciting? <laughs> we'll be coming, of course, to the winner of the Physics World Book of the Year 2019 later in the podcast. But we are just three books into the shortlist so far Mm -hmm. so let's do a quick flyby of a couple just to move things on a bit first up you've probably noticed that it's raining 
in the cosmic shed, which we just like to organise that so that you do believe that we're actually <laughs> sitting in a shed. Um, well, I don't know why we do, but we do. We, we do. do. Is... We're very, we're very honest about it yeah. every year. Yeah. Just December. rain, shine, cold. <laughs> yeah, freezing cold in December, <laughs> sitting in a shed in the rain. At least it means we can have a long session because we don't want to walk back down the garden in the mm. rain. Let's let the rain rain itself out while we talk about. Now, this was an intriguing one. I have to say, I've not read it. Mm-hmm. But the title has intrigued me, Underland, A Deep Time Journey by Robert McFarlane. Yes, that was probably one of the most exciting books we had this year. Um, our reviewer absolutely loved it, he gave it a rave review, and it's a, it's a big, beautiful book with an absolutely fascinating cover also. So there's a whole story about the cover that you can read in the review. So Underland's what you would call, it's it's almost, um, it's nature writing, you know, mm. it's it's not really a book focused on physics, but it's so beautifully written and it's absolutely of interest to physicists, scientific interest to physicists, which are two of our three criteria for our book of the year, the third being novel, mm. and it's very novel. The idea here, underland, quite like that word, it's so evocative, isn't it? Mm. Um, the whole book is evocative, but it's, it's this idea of what lies beneath the surface, just beneath the surface of the earth, and humanity's relationship to it. Can I just ask a question? Mm, Where's the physics? Ah, where's the physics? That's a good question. Then the funny thing is, there's a lot of physics that lives just under the surface. And the physics is in the fact that he talks extensively about um, the Bowlby mine, which has the drift dark matter experiment, um, which he visits. And, and it's fascinating to see someone like him, who is a natural history expert, talk to a dark matter physicist. And then there's um, also a big section towards the end of the book on nuclear reactors and how we store nuclear um, waste and the impact that has on the earth too. And, and, you know, the whole point of the book is, are we good ancestors? Are we, how do we inherit the earth? What are we leaving behind? So it's an absolutely fascinating read. Mm. We also have a formal winner of yes. the Physics World Book of the Year on the shortlist and that is Angela Saini with her follow-up to Inferior and this is Superior, The Return of Race Science by Angela Saini. Yeah, an absolutely fascinating book. I must say, uh, I think it's very brave of Angela. Um, first, she dealt with sexism, and you can imagine how how people behave towards her yeah. <laughs> over that. And then just 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 after that she decided her next book would be on racism um but yeah i think it's it's very brave of her to tackle these two subjects and she's done both of them so well so and especially right now with with nationalism and populism and everything that's happening in the world right now i think it's a very you know important time to be talking about these issues as, as our reviewer says, he can't think of any other popular science book that has provided such a comprehensive overview of the science of, of race, this this social construct, you know, and this is the main thing. Race is a social construct and not a scientific concept. Um, and, and, and so many people still believe that it has a basis in biology, you know, and that's what she seeks to... Um, understand see where it comes from and sort of deal with this 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 idea and and you know she covers so many fields including anthropology cognitive science biology eugenics all of these really difficult topics mm-hmm. it's a difficult read but a a very worthwhile one mm-hmm. at this point so we're halfway through the physics world book of the year shortlist and next up is the demon in the machine How the Hidden Webs of Information are Solving the Mystery of Life by Paul Davies. Now, if I was going to ask anybody to solve the mysteries of life, I'd probably ask Paul Davies. But the demon in the machine, what's that all about? Well, you know, it's the demon, Maxwell's demon, Andrew. What's Maxwell's demon? (laughs) Um, That is a good question. So Maxwell's demon, it's one of my favourite little physics physics things physics trivia um it was um maxwell's demon his eponymous demon this is james clerk maxwell of course and it was a thought experiment that he came up with when he was 
thinking about the second law of thermodynamics, you know, sort of absolute fundamental concept in physics that entropy just can't automatically decrease. You can't have a drop in entropy in a closed system, you know, this key tenant of physics. And and he said, okay, let's have a little thought experiment. He said, if you have a demon in a, in a room and uh, if there's a gas in this room spread spread in this room if the demon could very quickly open the door where he could push all of the fast moving particles of the gas um, if, if you could push all the fast moving molecules into the neighboring room if you could very quickly open the door and push all of them in eventually as he does that more and more and more we'll have a, a system where effectively you decreased entropy without doing any work and so has has that broken the second law of thermodynamics mm. uh, and for a long time it was this it was this thought experiment but people did say yeah yeah what what are you going to do about that um and then of course as th- there's been a lot of you know formalism around it and people have kind of thought about it a lot and and what we know today is that there's there's a key aspect of it that you have to think about, which is the fact that for the demon to know which are the hot bits of the gas versus all the cold bits, he's already done a piece of work. And, you know, otherwise you, you're in this, you know, that there was a concept of determinism. If you could know where every, every if, you, if you could know exactly how every single particle in the universe was going to behave, you could predict the future because you know exactly where it was and where it is now and so you could tell where it was going. But that's not the universe we live in. We, we don't live in a determinism deterministic universe and so he's done a piece of work to know this and so that's where in fact he's probably spent more energy doing this piece of this piece of work so it's this idea that you can convert heat into work or use information as a fuel and and this is something it's crazy but it's one of those things that people always say you know when your laptop gets really hot because it's doing work why can't we use that heat to charge the laptop and and it's it's an absolutely fascinating thing and people are actually you know people are actually working on it now and there's there's an actual information powered refrigerator that these physicists built in Finland now of course it's on a tiny 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 scale you know this is not something that's going to come into your kitchen now but so that's what he's talking about so that's the the demon that's the reference to this demon but point of Paul's book is that he takes this demon and extends it. The funny thing is that this book, it's absolutely one of the most fascinating books I've ever, ever read. And he takes this idea of information. That's that's the key part of this book. It's information. And the fact that information is a fundamental property of life. That's actually his theory. And and it's amazing because it's really a theory of everything. And often in physics, when you're talking about a theory of everything, people seem to think that you're talking about a way of, you know, making special relativity and quantum mechanics work together and things like that. But this would literally be a theory of everything. What he's talking about is where physics meets biology meets nanotechnology meets consciousness so he's really trying to find that true one underlying concept mm. across the universe and information as a fundamental emergent concept and it, it the, the implications of that are amazing yes i mean that's quite a lot yeah, <laughs> it's one of those books that you have to, you read a chapter and then you just sit there for a while and go, wow, yeah. <laughs> you know. I, I couldn't help but notice that as well as all the moon books, there's been a lot of books about Einstein and there's only one on the short list, which is Einstein's Unfinished Revolution, The Search for What Lies Beyond the Quantum by Lee Smolin. Indeed, and I'm about to disappoint you right now, Andrew, oh. um, because uh, Lee's been very clever, and he's named his book that. Um, but Einstein's Unfinished Revolution actually has very, well, very little to do with Einstein directly. It's not really a book about Einstein necessarily. It's a book about Einstein's take on quantum mechanics. And uh. what this book is really is um, Lee Smolin's 
take on the fundamentals of quantum mechanics and his his approach towards these big questions that still lie in how we see quantum mechanics and unlike a lot of what is what what ended up being the dominant part of quantum mechanics which is much more what Bohr suggested and this this idea that the quantum world is completely different from what we see and live with every day you know Einstein famously you know God does not play dice and all of that um, and so he was what you would describe as a realist whereas Bohr and you know his take on it was a non-realist and so what Lee is doing is his take on it is actually following up on what Einstein kind of saw but not quite there's a lot more there's a lot more to it there so this isn't really even about Einstein and there are all these books about Einstein this year what have you got against Einstein I've not got anything against Einstein in fact we you know there were so many and the reason for so many books about Einstein this year is the fact that it's was the anniversary of the eclipse you know the famous eclipse um, that proved a lot of our you know Einstein's QE theories about relativity and so it was another big year for it and um, some of these books were absolutely fascinating it felt like this year there wasn't a single month where a book about Einstein didn't land on my desk Um, and so at one point I asked Andrew Robinson who is our Einstein expert to um, do a big giant review of four of the the sort of most significant ones from this year and put them all in context with with each other and that included no shadow of a doubt the 1919 eclipse that confirmed Einstein's theory of relativity by Daniel uh, Kenefick Einstein's war by Matthew Stanley proving Einstein right by James Gates and Kathy Pelletier and then Einstein's wife by Alan Esterson and David C. Cassidy Uh, and then of course later on that year Andrew himself wrote another book about Einstein (laughs) Um, the enticingly titled Einstein on the Run How Britain Saved the World's Greatest Scientist which I must admit was my favourite of all the books you know I mean despite the fact that Andrew is a regular writer for Physics World um, he's such an expert on all things Einstein he did such a good job but like you say all these excellent books why didn't one of them make it onto the shortlist I must say that at this point for me, despite the fact that I enjoy reading these books, I can't imagine any book that really talks about Einstein and his life and relativity and things like that being novel. They're just not anymore. So in the long review that I, that Andrew does with the four books, he mentions that about five years ago when it was the centenary... Not, uh, about a couple of years ago when it was the um you know the big celebration of Einstein and his work um there were 1700 books wow. about Einstein okay. and since then we've probably at least added another 2 or 300 to the list so do you know what i'm a bit done with it it's great but it's it's a subculture unto itself and i just don't think it features on the list anymore you're going to get interested again when he's proven wrong about something oh dear this idea Einstein's wrong I mean if Einstein's estate could get a penny for every time someone (laughs) publishes something saying Einstein's wrong they'd be richer than ever yes absolutely (laughs) and equally if they could get a penny every time he's proven right they'd be rich right even richer Einstein still bloody right <laughs> but so yeah before before we before we spin away to the next book I, I should say that that Lee's book and, and, and you know for those for those of you familiar with Lee Smolin he's an absolute intellectual giant he is um, a very lucid author he, he takes you along beautifully um, through a book while discussing some of the most difficult and mind-numbing stuff in the universe really um, and so uh, he he does he does lay out his take on what's wrong with quantum fundamentals right now and kind of tries to explain what he thinks is the right way of looking at it. He says that he wants to salvage realism from quantum mechanics, you know, which is this really important thing, um, which I think needs to happen because 
physicists often are quite happy to be like, oh, the quantum world, completely different from everything we perceive in reality, but there it is. Mm. Um, but you can't just keep saying that because why is it so different? And then how does it work with everything that we see right now? And his main thing, which is actually thrilling, is that, you know, we, we like to think of space-time as one thing. Well, um, so what Smolin suggests is that time is fundamental, but space actually isn't. Oh. Space is no longer fundamental. It's emergent and and so then if you have that then you know from that you can you can you can look at the proximity of two objects you know to each other and 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 then there's a relationship because it's an emergent thing space is emergent it's no longer fundamental and so so then there's a there's a spatial separation that emerges because space is emergent and then that means that there is nothing fundamental about that separation and so there is scope for non-locality and non-locality that's one of the key things of quantum entanglement how it doesn't matter where these these particles are and you know that's one of the things that really makes a mockery of all our conventional notions of space right and and so so that's a really striking conclusion that he makes and mm -hmm. and and so it's 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 really brilliant and he's it's very bold what he's saying that this and and the, he's, he's tackling it and he's kind of going slightly against the more popular notion he's not a big fan of the multiverse theory mainly because he says that that just has it's so untestable and it has a lot of issues that we just sort of ignore including moral ones because he points out that what about all these awful alternative realities where everything's you know, really horrible <laughs> yeah, things yeah. like that there's this quote you know from the book where he says it's not it's not just that to try and invent a whole new whole new physics is risky for my career and damaging to my emotional stability i don't even know how to begin there is little as terrifying as putting aside the basic principles that form the foundation of our understanding of how we fit into nature but he's still doing that, and yeah. I think that's that's really quite something. So it's this is a rather inspiring and interesting book. Amazing. The, uh, the Christmas list just keeps growing Indeed. and growing. There's another book on the short list, which sounds as though it's sort of in a similar field. The Case Against Reality, How Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes, by Donald D. Hoffman. Yeah, this was, this was really interesting book again, and you're right. There is there is this you know we're talking again about perceived truths and that. And what what um, this book deals with is this thing that our our perceptions we have evolved to not see reality as it is. So it's this idea that if truth itself is hazardous to life then truth is not going to be what we see. Um, instead, we're going to see something that is not true, but that can protect us, which all sounds a bit weird and crazy, but a very nice and simple way of thinking about this, as he describes in the book, is that we've evolved so that if we see um, a squiggly thing in tall grass, it's better for our brains to immediately think and perceive it as a snake as, as compared to a piece of wood. Because if it's a piece of wood then it's fine even if we first thought it was a snake versus if it's a snake instead. So he, there's this thing about the fitness beats truth theorem and the idea here is that any any perception strategy that enhances fitness or our safety will always win out over a strategy that tries to accurately depict reality because it doesn't actually help us mm. and then from this you know so there's this beautiful phrase called perceptual infidelity you know so if we have this perceptual infidelity and this is this is you know us human beings and how we've evolved then where does the physics come in how does our observation and interaction with the universe um, and again we're coming to coming back to this idea of information and how we process information and so I think this book together with Lee Smolin's book and Paul Davis's book make for some absolutely brilliant mind-numbing stuff yeah. that you know if you read those three in a row you might really need a lie down after. absolutely well I would hope you'd read them lying down 
I'm too day surely you read in bed. Who who gets time to read when you're not in bed? I'd love to be able to read just in the middle of the day. Well, do you know what? You might want to get a job as a review editor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, that's true. I, when it's I a have... part of my bio. I say it says I get paid to read. How great is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Occasionally you pay me to read, uh, which is great. I do indeed. Let's talk about the last two books on the shortlist, which are... The Universe Speaks in Numbers, How Modern Maths Reveals Nature's Deepest Secrets by Graham Farmello, another former winner Mm -hmm. of the Physics World Book of the Year, and Catching Stardust, Comets, Asteroids and the Birth of the Solar System by Natalie Starkey. Yeah, again, both, it couldn't be more different books, but so fascinating. As you say, Graham Formello has won, won the Book of the Year before. He is such a lovely writer and you couldn't imagine anyone better to take you on this mathematical journey and so really what the book is about is that it takes you through how key mathematics and mathematical theories have been to establishing physics and fundamental physics and what it really does focus on is is string theory and the contributions that mathematics and string theory has made to our understanding of the universe and what's really interesting about it is that it's almost, I think it's almost a bit of a response to some of the other books that we've had in recent years, yeah. including Sabine Hossenfelder's Lost in Maths yeah. um, and other books like that that sort of critique string theory and getting a bit too lost in, in having mathematically beautiful and true theorems that just don't actually have any implications yeah. on, on reality again. Um, but what Graham does is is thoroughly defend it. He takes you... I mean, it's it's such a brilliant way of just looking at the impact of mathematics on our understanding of the universe, and he's such a good writer. But he does, to a certain extent, you know, he he the the naysayers, people like Sabine and and Peter Woid, who again, not even wrong, people mm-hmm. like that. He he kind of it's it's not a book where he's very objective about it. It's not like he does. It's a game of halves. Um, he just says, look, this is the maths. This is what it says. It's some unbelievable stuff. It's true and beautiful and and this is what it tells us and I think his take on it is that it's just that string theory is too untestable right now and that just that means that we'll test it at some point in the future okay that's his take on it but um, you talk about those other people Mm -hmm. you're one of those people aren't you I am a little bit I am a little bit yes so this must be (laughs) impressive book to win you round this indeed indeed but it's 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 also so good at just taking you through and you know he start he does the thing which again some uh, actually really annoys me but it was still such a good book which is starting with you know mathematics from sort of the Greek times onwards brings you forward then sort of you know picks up again around the early 1970s which is when the hardcore work around the mathematics of string theory was done and kind of brings you to today and and tells you about how how we've used maths to make sense of the universe on a fundamental level and and in quite a good and simple way and if anyone if if i was going to read a book about this by anyone it would be graham okay (laughs) so it's it's about the fundamental physics it's it's not about because i was talking to my daughter lyra earlier today about how we can use maths to figure out elliptical orbits of planets around stars thousands of light years away and um she, her mind was blown by that, so this one's going to really blow her mind, right? <laughs> which actually brings us nicely to the to the last book on our list, which is Catching Stardust. And um, again, you know, I, I regularly complain, just like too many Einstein books, too many astronomy books. But every now and again, we, I mean, you know, we regularly review them, and that's because they're of interest to readers, mm. uh, and they're, they're fun, and they're pretty. Um, what I really liked about Catching Stardust, and I think this is the first popular science book by Natalie Starkey so well done to her on making it mm. making her debut book uh, onto our shortlist um, but what was really great about the book is that she's tackled this really fun topic of comets and asteroids um, but what we really liked about the book is that it it doesn't it doesn't just tell us 
early history of this and it doesn't just tell you the science of comets and asteroids and and what they tell us about how our solar system formed and things like that there's large sections of the book where she talks about all of the very exciting missions that we've had to comets and asteroids within our solar system in the past decade um, there's a whole section on Rosetta and all of these amazing Hayabusa and the Stardust and 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 she talks about it there's also you know she's part of this community that works on this as a, as a, as a scientist and so she talks about what it's like there's so there's this perfect mix of the human aspect of space exploration and of the actual science yeah. in in catching stardust and also what a great title catching yeah, stardust love it wonderful stuff uh, another one going on my christmas list but that brings us to the end of the list which can only mean that it brings us to the winner of the physics world book of the year 2019 and Tushna, can you reveal who it is Indeed I can. So I, I'm absolutely thrilled to say that the winner for this year, the 2019 winner, is Paul Davis's The Demon in the Machine. Brilliant. An excellent choice. Any of the books on the list would have been an indeed, excellent choice. Indeed, indeed. And I caught up with Paul Davis to give him the good news. Congratulations on winning the Physics World Book of the Year. Well, thank you. I was really delighted. Uh, As you can tell from my accent, I'm uh, British, British British-born, and so it's especially wonderful for me to be recognised in my home country. So you knew you were shortlisted, but did you expect to win? I didn't expect to win because the competition is so great. Uh, When I embarked on what we might call popular science writing, Oh, decades ago. There were not many people doing it. Uh, But what I've noticed during my career is that the importance of communicating science, particularly physics, to the general public has grown and grown. And so now almost all of my colleagues are are doing it. And so there's a lot more competition. How has it been received around the world? Well, I was embarrassed at the wonderful Uh, accolades that I received. The reviews of the book uh, were really uh, quite sensational and uh, uh, there's a list of them on the book and uh, I uh, when I embarked on writing this book it is of course about the the physics of living matter why uh, life seems almost magical to a physicist and what's going on there what what's the physics uh, behind that. Uh, I was Uh, stepping a bit outside my comfort zone and I thought I might ruffle a few feathers. I've always had this point of view if I'm writing uh, a book for the general public it should not just be a sort of review of the state of the field. I should always try to be a little bit provocative, push the boundaries, uh, set out an agenda for the future, try to inspire the young generation who might think oh I've never thought about it that way. Yes maybe that's where the subject will be in 10 years or 20 years. So uh, when I do that, of course, I'm always worried that uh, conservative reviewers will think uh, that I've taken leave of my senses. Well, not a bit of it. Uh, it seems that it was very well received. I mean, obviously, writing a, a, a popular science book is different to writing a scientific paper. Has, it, has the science moved on since you wrote it? I don't think the science of the physics of life has really moved on very much. Uh, except what I'm trying to do in this book is connect uh, physics and chemistry and biology, obviously, but also computer science, the foundations of mathematics, and most importantly, information theory. The application of information theory and the theory of complexity to living systems to see what is distinctive about them, that's where the frontier is moving fastest. And of course, there have been many papers in the year or so since I uh, did the final set of proofs. Uh, that is a rapidly moving subject. And in fact, if, if there are any young people listening, and I hope there are, uh, then I would say, uh, where where is the exciting new physics of the next generation? So most of my work was done in the 20th century, when the physics of the very large, uh, cosmology really, and astrophysics, the physics of the very small, particle physics mainly, uh, these were the exciting frontiers. In the 21st century, the physics of the very complex, I think, is the exciting frontier. And so that's where I would go if I was a young person today thinking about where are the really major findings going to come from and where is the new technology most likely to uh, unveil new processes and new 
possibly even new laws, uh, as Schrodinger expressed it, a new kind of physics prevailing in living systems. I think that's a really exciting idea. That's where I would go if I was 30, 40 years younger. Today, where is it most exciting you, physics and technology and, and this side of things? Uh, what has happened, I think, is that uh, the field that we call nanotechnology has advanced to the point where I think most people are aware of the fact you can manipulate individual atoms. But more than that, you can make nano machines on the same sort of scale that life has made nano machines. Our body is full of uh, little uh, molecular machines that carry out the business of life. And some of these machines are reminiscent of Maxwell's famous demon. That's the demon uh, that appears in the title of the book. Uh, the demon in the machine means that um, Maxwell's demon-like entities are playing the margins of the second law of thermodynamics, gaining all sorts of advantages in living organisms. Information uh, goes much more than just a little bit of thermodynamic manipulation, but we see this sort of demonic uh, uh, activity at work. And now nanotechnology can actually produce Maxwell demons. Uh, when Maxwell first came up with this idea, in the middle of the 19th century, it was purely a thought experiment. Uh, I don't suppose he ever supposed that uh, in the fullness of time that people would actually make Maxwell demons. But sure enough, in the lab, it is now possible to make little devices that uh, use information as a fuel. They can turn information into work. They can do work not by plugging into the national grid or something, but by manipulating information. And so this uh, sensationally validates Maxwell's original idea that by that a little demonic being, by having information about molecular motions, could perform useful work. This is real. This is now real technology. I don't think it's going to have an impact on our kitchen appliances anytime soon, but in terms of testing fundamental physics in complex systems where physics meets biology, uh, this type of technology is very exciting. And I foresee a further merger, uh, maybe in the next 10 years or so, where uh, these little uh, nano machines, this nanotechnology, will merge with quantum technology. And so we'll see the triple interface of biology and quantum mechanics and nanotechnology. And if I were to put money on where we will discover new physics. It's going to be at that intersection. You're at Arizona State University. Is that what your research team are looking at now? Here at Arizona State University, we have a very, very diverse agenda. Uh, the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science, of which I'm director, is a small center, but it has a, a, a big enough agenda that encompasses everything from quantum gravity uh, through astrobiology to complexity theory and the origin of life. And we're particularly zeroing in on the uh, application of information theory and network theory to living systems and prebiotic systems. So we'd like to understand uh, what is this thing called life. And if we were to go somewhere else, Enceladus or Mars or somewhere, uh, and we're looking for life but not as we know it, uh, is there a sort of informational signature uh, that would transcend the substrate, the actual stuff of which life is made, uh, a universal signature of life based on its information patterning, the software of life, if you like. So that's what I tell people is our main concern. It's the software of life, not so much the hardware. Um, of course, people have been beavering away for 100 years trying to make life in the lab by mixing stuff up, uh, and good luck to them. Uh, and, and we do uh, collaborate with those people, but we're more interested in uh, the, what makes life tick is is the information organization patterning and management uh, and it's that uh, aspect that we are working on but it has ramifications right across from missions to Enceladus uh, through to uh, ecology I often like to say that the uh, flow of information is not just from genes into proteins or signaling between cells or signaling between organisms it spreads out and encompasses our whole planet i like to say the biosphere is the original world wide web yeah so do you get a chance to read other people's physics books well i have a couple sitting on my desk uh, one of these is by uh, stephen wolfram uh, who uh, started life as a theoretical physicist and he uh, invented mathematica and then he became very uh, deeply involved with cellular automata as a way of 
modeling complex systems. And we've made great uh, use of that. Uh, and I know Stephen Wolfram pretty well, and he's written earlier books. And this is a, a book intended for the general public. It's uh, sitting on my desk. It arrived about two days ago. I'm waiting to read it. Um, well, thank you very much for talking to me. And congratulations again for winning the Physics World Book of the Year 2019. Thank you. And I'm truly delighted. It was a real honour to talk to him. Apart from the fact that he's quite a brilliant writer and thinker and scientist, it's that many years ago, I actually won a competition. And part of the prize was to win two books by Paul Davies. So it was nice to kind of repay the favour, although I had nothing to do with him winning this one. (laughs) And the competition was to come up with an idea for a message that would be beamed out into space in case aliens could intercept it. And it was actually beamed... the, The prize was that your message was beamed out into space and two books by Paul Davies. And you're telling me you won this, Andy? I did win. What was your message? Uh, It was, if you've been watching our television broadcast, I'd like to apologise for everything before and after Carl Sagan's Cosmos. Oh, oh my gosh, I love it. I really hope there's an alien out there desperately trying to download Cosmos. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I I need to update it now, though, and say his Dark Materials is also awesome. But back to Paul Davies, because... We talked about the book a little before, did, yes. but what, what what really swung it for you? Do you know, um, I read many books as part of, as part of my job, as, as outside my job. I read a lot of science writing um, and um, that means that I, I do often get jaded. It takes a lot to convince me of a really spectacular book. Um, this was one that I literally couldn't put down. I, I carried this book around everywhere for about oh, five days before I blast my way through it. Um, and, and some of, you know, the fact that he's dealing with this basis of everything including physics and life is is absolutely amazing um but some of the stuff that he talks about like this concept of the spectrum of life or going from non-life to life andrew this is brilliant part of the book where he discusses this um and and so he gives a really great example that like what if we sent a spacecraft um to enceladus and and we flew it through the plume of material that's spewing out of its interior you know we've got all these beautiful pictures of it and we collected a molecular sample right what at, you know at what point you know when we look at these molecules at what point would we say are we dealing with life are we dealing with almost life are we dealing with just past life so he he describes this thing called a life meter and he talks about research with someone um lee cronin in in glasgow he's a chemist and he's he's literally talking about building this kind of life meter where you would look at the chemical pathways that you assemble and see how complex these pathways are and depending on a scale of complexity you could say aha we are at currently at 50% life and then that it just it just you know when i was reading those bits i was just thinking it reminded me all sorts of star trek references yeah. how amazing would it be if we could approach a planet and say wow in 10,000 years this this planet's going to have little creatures in the sea or, or yeah. maybe in 500 years you know so it 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 deals and you know i mean this book like you say that talks about the fundamentals of thermodynamics uh, that talks about evolution that talks about perceptions and reality and truth and consciousness and and double-headed worms I'm not going to say anything more than double-headed worms and this was when I asked Paul when I met him this was the bit that he said shocked him the most was the double-headed worms so you're going to have to read the book to find out about double-headed worms life the universe and everything I cannot think of a better way to end a podcast and thank you very much indeed for joining me here thanks Andrew, always a pleasure and congratulations to Paul Davies and all of the authors on the shortlist for this year's Physics World Book of the Year congratulations if you haven't, do go back and listen to that Physics World Weekly podcast from the last week in November where you look back at a hundred of the books Mm -hmm. kind of (laughs) (laughs) we've picked out a few (laughs) (laughs) and um, we'll be back next year Mm -hmm. with something else from this wonderful world of physics and thank you very much for listening Physics World